0: Okay, here we go. Part two of my commentary on epilogue. As I mentioned in the first commentary, this one will discuss uh, fan reaction to the episode, my own interpretations of it, and little bits of trivia here and there. So in a second here, Terry's about to do the little backhanded punch that Bruce made famous. And it serves as a nice little bookend too, because Bruce or or old Bruce did it in rebirth with his cane to take down one of the Jokers outside of Wayne Mansion and here in the last Batman Beyond episode or pseudo episode, whatever you want to call it. Terry does it as well. Now I got the feeling that uh Waller was supposed to be under house arrest or or some something of that nature that perhaps due to her her crimes and her actions uh, during her tenure with the government that she was unable to leave her house, either for her own protection or uh, to prevent her from spilling any secrets or, or carrying on her work in any way. That was the impression I got, but maybe I was reading too much into it. And the uh, the guard that was sitting at the security monitor there a second ago Looked uh, looked quite like Dwayne McDuffie to me, the uh, the writer of the episode. I imagine that was probably intentional. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the circumstances under which I saw this episode for the first time. Uh, being in Canada, I first saw the episode on YTV, a uh, sort of children's and animation program programming channel uh, that we have here in Canada. And but there was some, there was a, a glitch during the first airing when the episode was supposed to start. Instead, we were subjected to uh, like five minutes of like exercise equipment infomercial and weird sort of stop motion children's cartoons and so on. Somebody had clearly screwed up on the technical end at the YTV uh, headquarters, and we were getting the wrong feed. And then it, it kicked in in its proper way uh when the episode proper started, but I missed the everybody watching it on y t v missed the uh the teaser and the opening credits so this episode is is dense and confusing enough to a first time viewer as it is without continually thinking for twenty minutes that you would mu- that you must have missed something important you're like that there, there must have been i was just sitting there the whole time thinking no this this can 't be right I must have missed something that would explain all this. Of course, now I appreciate the episode and all of its intricacies, and I I, I love it unconditionally. But at the time, I, it was almost too much. It was like sensory overload in a way, and uh, it just you know because the revelations just hit you so hard and fast, and and characters that you didn't expect to see, and and uh, references references to events that you never expected to to hear about again, and of course, the big bombshell revelation about Terry's parentage, and I almost turned the episode off partway through, which I'd never been inclined to do during any episode of the DCAU before, and it's not because I thought the episode was bad, it's that the sheer onslaught of information combined with uh, the technical grits that constantly made me think I was missing something, just combined to just put me in this sort of fugue state where I, I didn't quite know which way was up, and it, it was almost too much. I almost shut it off, and I'm glad I didn't, because it sort of dovetails at the end, and the pre-credit sequence, as it turned out, when they re-aired the episode in its proper way, didn't really uh, didn't really provide too much additional information. So, it all worked out. So, a few things that, uh, that we've gone by now, I'll go back and mention. Uh... Terry's costume, the bat suit in this uh this time period which is 15 years past the time period of Batman Beyond the series is different than it was in the Batman Beyond series. It's closer to to Bruce's JLU era costume. The bat symbol is smaller. The the compartments along the belt aren't the little high-tech ones that Terry had initially. They're more like the pouches that Bruce had in his JLU costume. So uh sort of a move on the part of the uh the creators to subconsciously link Terry and Bruce a bit more i suppose before the revelation is uh, is let out of the bag and perhaps on Terry's part in the context of the story is uh is an incline is uh, is a tendency on his part to sort of become more like Bruce even before he realizes why he's doing it and the uh what I like to call the ancient Bruce design as, as opposed to the old Bruce from Batman Beyond, the Batman Beyond series, is quite similar to some early design uh, sketches that were done before the Batman Beyond series when they were trying to figure out how, you know, 85 or whatever year old Bruce would look in the Batman Beyond series. They did some, some early character designs that showed, you know, he had lost all his hair and he was even missing an eye at one point. Uh, and so this, uh, it looks like they sort of dusted off some of those, uh, that one particular design and used it here for a really, really like 100 year old Bruce. Also, Terry mentions, uh, when he's listing people that loved Bruce, but left him because of his, you know, hard ass ways, he mentions Dick and Tim and Barbara and he mentions Selena being of course, Selena Kyle or Catwoman. The implication, perhaps, being that at some point uh, Selina found out that Bruce Wayne is Batman and perhaps joined him in his fight against evil and they became close, but somewhere along the way she left him. Make an interesting story that we haven't seen yet, if if that is the correct interpretation of it. And Lauren Tom pulls a, an interesting trifecta in this episode. She voices... Three characters she voices, of course, Dana. And she voices Doctor Light coming up in a, a few minutes when Waller tells her story, set in the jail. U time period, Doctor Light's first speaking appearance in the in terms of air date order. And uh, she also reprises her role as the Green Lantern Beyond, quote unquote Green Lantern Beyond, um, whom she played in the Batman Beyond two part or the Call. When he was simply a child, and and therefore having a, a woman voice him made a bit more sense here. When he's supposed to be in his twenties or thirties, uh, I'm not sure if they had to pitch Lauren Tom down, or she can naturally lower her voice to that level. But uh, it's quite imprex- impressive that she's able to not only voice three characters and make them sound completely different, but given that two of those characters should previously voiced when they were much younger in their either a child or a teenager respectively she's able to age those voices convincingly and still you know make them sound like natural evolutions of you know dana when she was 15 and and green lantern when he was 10 or 12 or whatever and still make them sound convincing and distinct it's quite impressive and green lantern beyond's name was established in uh, some of the batman beyond tie-in comics His name was established to be Cairo, which is, interestingly enough, a nod to the Hal Jordan Green Lantern's sidekick in the old Superman Aquaman animation hour from, you know, decades past, who was named Cairo. So whoever wrote that comic threw that in there as a nod to that. And the design of the uh the new parasite that we saw when Terry was imagining quitting the Justice League is uh is basically the Ed McGuinness Parasite design from uh the recent Superman comics from a few years ago, before Parasite's Untimely Demise. And uh is voiced not by um Brian James or Brian George, the two actors that, that voice Parasite in Superman the animated series in Justice League, but rather by Mark warden, one of their sort of one of their so-called utility players who um interestingly enough was one of the last uh was one of the uh the last to be in the running for the role of uh, of Terry McGinnis, and of course was eventually beaten up by Wilfred L, but the fact they had him in this episode is is sort of appropriate in that sense it's the last time we'll see. Uh, Terry and, Bat- and uh, the whole Batman Beyond time frame, and it just struck me as being appropriate. A few other things about the uh, the fantasy sequence with the with the Justice League there. Um, Cairo mentions the the villain group being called the Iniquity Collective, and uh, that's sort of a sly reference to the fact that ever since the original. Injustice Society back in the 40s, and then that led to you know the Injustice Gang and the Injustice League, and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Over the 65 years between uh, the time period of Justice League and, and the time period of Epilogue, it's clear that uh, the villains are just running out of synonyms for injustice and gang. It's it's pretty funny that they've the only the only synonyms left are iniquity and collective. And, um, also, uh, character created for the Batman Beyond 2 part of the call, uh, Aquagirl, as seen in the, uh, the black and white Justice League sequence from a few minutes ago, has, uh, now, now is now presumably calling herself Aqua Woman, but she has, uh, Aquaman's A symbol belt. Now, Batman, the Batman Beyond 2 part of the call established in a quick throwaway shot of the computer that Aquaman was missing in the Batman Beyond time period. And so it's led some fans to conjecture that sometime between then and 15 years later, uh, the League found Aquaman, and Aquagirl, as a result, became his acknowledged and official successor, inheriting his belt and his mantle, and, and so on and so forth. So, but that might be reading too much into just one quick shot of the belt. And I also like during the uh, the black and white sequence with the Iniquity Collective that Terry has become more like Bruce became in, in the Justice League series, where villains that once posed a threat to him one-on-one back in his own series, he's now able to take them out you know, in twos and threes, just with uh, expertly placed batarangs just like uh, just like Batman was able to do to many, many villains, just like Bruce was able to do to many, many villains, and Justice League and JLU taking them out with crazy nuclear batarangs and electric batarangs and so on by the by the dozens. Also, interestingly, uh, the fact that they threw in uh Shriek and Ink and Stalker into the uh into that sequence, they could have very well uh had given Stalker and we'll see her in a few minutes, uh Phantasm. Some lines, given that Stalker was voiced by Carl Lumbly, who of course plays John Jones, and Phantasm was voiced by Dana Delaney, who plays Lois Lane. So given that they're both regulars on the show, or in Dana Delaney's case, you know, recurring guest stars, they could have easily have given those characters some lines and and gotten the original actors back. But I suppose they felt that this episode had enough stuff coming at you all at once without giving extraneous speaking lines to, to minor characters. And now, finally catching up to what's happening on the screen, um, the uh, the Royal Flush Gang here, when Waller says it's either the second or the third who can keep it all straight, that's a little uh, throw-out to the fans, a little shout-out to the fans there, because uh, the fans were quite confused by the uh, Royal Flush Gang that debuted in Wild Cards. It was so dissimilar to the one that we had seen in Batman Beyond. Fans wondered if that meant that the two series weren't in continuity with each other after all, or if there were two completely different Royal flush gangs or whether the, the one we saw in Batman beyond did evolve from this one. And it just, a lot of crazy stuff happened along the way to make them so different. So they give that little line to Waller there to show that, yeah, we know that <laughs> the Royal flush gangs can be, you know, different and confusing. And that's just, that's just the, wa- the way the Royal flush gangs are in this continuity. There's a bunch of them and it's hard to keep it straight. I wonder whether uh, Waller was supposed to be the liaison to the Justice League during the time period of this scene, because she mentions, of course, that she goes on, that she went on to become the liaison at some point. But uh, when she shows up here in the helicopter, Batman doesn't say, you know, Waller, what does, what does the government want with this, want with us this time, or, you know, what's the Justice Department want, or whatever. He says, I should have. we should have recognized your hand in this, implying that, you know, if they're used to seeing her all the time, he wouldn't have said that. He would only have said that if she only shows up for stuff that has to do with the fallout from Cadmus. So she's probably not the liaison to the Justice League in this time period yet. So this, I believe, based on comments from Dwayne McDuffie and uh, and the other creators, is supposed to be the last event that takes place in the present time frame. In other words, this takes place after the next season of JLU, which, of course, when they did this episode, they didn't know there was going to be another season. And so this takes place after Destroyer, but presumably before the Return of the Joker flashback with uh, Joker's death and the brainwashing of Tim Drake. And I mentioned it on the other commentary, but the moment with Batman and Ace there is one of my all-time favorite Batman moments. I like the moments that show... I mean, it's all, it's, it's all well and good to show him to be cool and badass and no-nonsense and aggressive and, and all that. And that's all well and good. That's part of his character. But I tend to like the moments that show his kindness and his compassion, because as Waller says later, no one cares more about his fellow man than Batman and I like moments that bring that out because it's a it's an often often ignored aspect of his character but it's really at the heart of his character and so I tend to favor moments that really accentuate that the moment uh given that it was probably so uh, so emotional for batman also made me wonder if maybe he named his dog in batman beyond after race it's a bit of a odd coincidence otherwise It's possible, I suppose. And when Waller goes on here about being the liaison and meeting some incredible people and watching Batman grow older, I love the stories that this implies that we'll probably never get to see. I'd love to see a series about the Justice League 10 or 20 years after the time period of Destroyer when some of the members are getting older and maybe some have gotten married and have children. The next generation's coming up. Um... And Waller's the liaison, and Batman's getting older, and we see him struggling with that. And it's just such rich story potential there that will unfortunately probably never be explored. In a second here, we're going to see a quick cameo from the Blad Man. There he is right there in the bottom left, the bald man there. He's called the Blad Man because in a message board post on the Toon Zone forums, someone who was referring to him misspelled the word bald, and it stuck. And so, that character design, which is, seems to be everywhere in the Batman Beyond series, and was stuck in again here, probably as a little bit of an in-joke, or perhaps because they were running short on futuristic character models, uh, will forever be known as the Bladman character. I have to wonder why the government would have what Waller refers to as psychological profiles on Thomas and Martha Wayne, given that they died a good 30 years before Cadmus was founded. But, whatever. And I love that uh, the Grey Ghost seems to be one of Terry's childhood heroes, just like he was Bruce's. There's a lot of fun little moments of symmetry like that in this episode. And one other thing that I found to be really remarkable about this episode, now, of course, due to what's commonly referred to as the Bat Embargo, due to the existence of the other uh, Batman animated series, The Batman, uh, the JLU creators were not allowed to use the vast majority of Batman villains and supporting characters. But nonetheless, this episode still manages to evoke that old-timey Batman feel, and it feels like a Batman episode, even though there aren't really any traditional Batman characters in it. But because they established such strong connections between Bruce Wayne and Ace and Bruce Wayne and Amanda Waller, their inclusion and the fact that they dusted off uh, one of their own original Batman villains, Phantasm, from the Mask of the Phantasm movie, really makes you feel like this is a Batman episode without uh, throwing in, say, the Joker or Alfred, who they probably would have used had they been able to. But I find it hard to believe it. it would have improved on the uh, the end result that we got here. So a lot of people hated what this episode did to Terry's character. They felt that it took away from his unique role in the Batman Beyond series. That he was a young kid who who hadn't had any training or, or didn't you know wasn't rich and didn't have you know wasn't a natural born athlete. But he still, through sheer determination, managed to make himself Batman, and that's a that's a cool message. Uh, and a lot of people felt that this diminished that by making him Bruce's son. Uh, he now has a genetic predisposition towards, uh, athleticism and intelligence and so on, even though Waller kind of dismisses the intelligence aspect here. Uh, and so some people felt that that diminished Terry, but, um, and and they're welcome to their opinion, but I felt that they kind of missed the point in a way because, The idea, uh, what they were going for was that it doesn't matter who Terry's father is, genetically speaking, he's his own man. I mean, we're all somebody's sons or daughters, but that doesn't make us carbon copies of them. We're all obviously our own people. And if we're willing to accept that premise, then I don't see what this changes about Terry fundamentally as a character. It changes an aspect of his backstory, of his origins, but it doesn't change who he is now. And it doesn't change, it doesn't diminish any of the things he was able to accomplish uh, in his tenure as Batman. We saw that he wasn't, you know, an exceptionally intelligent person. We saw that he didn't have a lot of money. No, none of those things have changed. It's not like they rewrote rebirth to make him a child of privilege or anything. Everything he accomplished is still valid. It's just that. There's now this other aspect to him that wasn't there before. And that's the way I look at it anyway. The idea was that Amanda Waller was wrong. And by the time period of this episode, she has realized it. That you can't create another Batman by messing with uh, people's genes or by hiring assassins or any of that. It's whether you want to call it fate or, or, you know, the hand of God or whatever you want to call it. She didn't create a new Batman, she just happened to get one anyway, due to a a series of events that no one, not even she, could have predicted. And that's the beauty of this episode, is that even though it changes a lot of stuff that we thought we knew about Terry, it doesn't change who he is fundamentally, and in fact it changes nothing that I believe to be important about who he is, or what the Batman Beyond series was about. It simply adds more texture to it, in my opinion. And there, of course, we get Shirley Walker's fantastic Batman theme as we go out of this episode, and if you're watching this in the order I would recommend, then this would be the very last episode of the DCAU you watch. Quite appropriate, given what Jay Allman referred to as an endless ending, one that sums everything up, puts a nice bow on it, but still leaves room for limitless stories in the future. Thanks for listening.